told Nishant what the title was and he wrote uh, The Dark Knight of the Soul, like, you know, the hero we don't want, but the hero we need. So definitely it's not about Batman, just in case you're wondering. Can you please uh, rise up with me as we read from Psalm 119, verse 73 to 88. Psalm 119, verses 73 to 88. And it says, Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear you turn to me that they may know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes that I may not be put to shame. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They have almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. You may be seated. Father God, Thank you, Lord, for your word that is there to encourage us, but also is brutally real and realistic about the challenges that we will face on this earth, and yet has a message to offer uh, to our every circumstance. Even in times of desperation, we can turn to you and to your word for encouragement. So we pray, O Lord, that as we go over this passage, that you will uh, help us to be focused on your word and, and appropriate the lessons that you want to take from it today. We ask this in the name of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So as we've been going through Psalm 119, I hope that you have uh, recognized some of the consistent themes that are repeated over and over. One of the first things you realize when you read Psalm 119, you know, it's not the middle psalm in the whole book, but it is you could say the Psalm of Psalms, like all of the themes in the book of Psalms is somehow repeated in Psalm 119. So as we remember, Psalm 1 starts saying that blessed are those whose ways are blameless. And you can see that same theme in Psalm 119. You can see the goodness of God, the steadfast love of God in Psalm 34 and Psalm 107 among many others. And they're also in Psalm 119. There's also the affliction of the faithful, the longing for deliverance and justice, Psalm 73, you know, Psalm 69, and again, we see that in Psalm 119. So definitely, a lot of the themes in the Psalms are recaptured in Psalm 119. So we call it the Psalm of Psalms. At the same time, like we said, even though it is talking about the Word of God, in reality, it is talking about God. 
So in talking about God's word, it is talking about God. It's talking about the goodness of God. It's talking about the steadfast love of God. In the passage that we just read in verse 73, it talks about God as creator, which we also read in Psalm 8 and Psalm 33 and so on. It talks about God as savior and judge. He's our ultimate hope. And so the main idea of Psalm 119 in bringing out the beauty of the word of God is that it gives us two types of people, two responses to God, two ways to live. The overall consistent theme of the Bible is that there is a twofold difference between people. There's only a dual duality in the types of people. There's no middle way. Either you are for God or you're opposed to God. There's no in-between. Either you're for God or you're opposed to God. You know, in the New Covenant we read, either you are in Christ or you're outside of Christ. There's no in-between. The judgment of God is determined by whether you are in Christ or you're outside of Christ. You know, C.S. Lewis once said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. Either you are for God or you're opposed to God. You know, we live in a modern society where people are very uncomfortable when you say there's binary options. But the Bible is very clear. When it comes to God, there's a binary. You're for him or you're opposed to him. And what Psalm 119 is trying to tell us is mirroring people's response to God, there are two responses that are possible to the word of God. Either you believe in the word of God or you don't believe it. That means either you believe in the word of God, which is the revelation of God, therefore you believe God, or you don't believe the revelation of God, therefore you don't believe God. You know, it's fashionable today in many circles to kind of disassociate the Bible from following God. As if you can say that I can follow God or follow this great teacher uh, called Jesus or follow only the Gospels or something like that while I doubt the rest of the word. And what Psalm 119 says, there's no option where you doubt the Bible, you doubt the word of God, and then you claim to follow God. You know, there's an overall theme in today's passage in Psalm, 73, uh, Psalm 119, verse 73 to 80. It talks about the goodness of God expressed through his word. And then in verses 81 to 88, it talks about the pers perseverance of the believer of God because of the word in times of adversity and affliction. Those are the two themes you will see in these two passages that we read. The goodness of God and the perseverance of the saint in the word of God. But to get to those themes, we have to understand some broader concepts that are in the psalm, that are in this passage, and not only in this passage, but in the scriptures themselves. And those are threefold. The first one, that God's word is a faithful representation of God.
God's word is the faithful representation of God. The second concept is that, like I said before, there are only two ways to live. And the last concept is the question, then where should the believer's confidence be? So God's word is a faithful representation of God. Because of that, there are two ways to live. And because of that, we ask ourselves, where should the believer's confidence be? What do we mean when we say that God's word is, a f- is the faithful representation of God? You know, in Psalm chapter 8, verse 3 to 4, it says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? See, the psalmist is amazed by the fact that God takes care of mankind, that God has set a unique imprint on, on, on men and women that he has created. But let alone the fact that God is mindful of him, the psalmist is delighted that God has spoken to him. He's amazed by the fact that out of all of creation, God has condescended only to speak directly to mankind and by extension to him, the individual. And that is the reason why there's an exuberant praise of the word of God in Psalm 119. And it is his conviction that because God has spoken, he will seek out every precept, every commandment in the word of God in order to live according to the will of God. So the message of Psalm 119 can be condensed to the fact that the word of God represents God faithfully and also in a sense, it represents God fully. What do we mean by that? It represents God faithfully in that what it reveals about God, what the word of God reveals about God is true about God. So it's faithful to the character of God. And it represents God fully Not in the sense that you read the Bible, you get to know everything about God. But that you get to know whatever you need to know about God. And there's a difference. There are many things that we will never be able to know about God. But whatever we need to know about God is contained in the word of God. So it represents to mankind, the word of God represents God faithfully and fully. So in this passage, Psalm 119, the first verse we read today, Psalm verse 73 says, your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Saying the purpose of creation, the purpose of mankind being created is to do what? Is to learn his commandments. That's why He wants to have understanding. And then when you look at the following verses, you will see that the characteristics that are assigned to the word of God is the characteristics that we would assign to God himself. So verse 75 says, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous. That is a characteristic of God, that he is righteous. Then verse 76, let your steadfast love comfort me 
according to your promise to your servant. So he's saying one of God's great characteristics is that he's steadfast. He has steadfast love. And then the psalmist compares that to the promise that has been given. Then verse 81, it says, my soul longs for your salvation, God as Savior. What does he say then? I hope in your word. The means by which we get to know God as Savior is the word of God. And then lastly, as another example, in verse 86, it says, all your commandments are sure. Basically, all your commandments are true. All your commandments are faithful. That is a characteristic of God, that God is faithful, that God is true. So the word of God represents God fully, and it represents God faithfully. And that same conviction is repeated in the New Testament, specifically in the book of Hebrews, which we read today morning. It says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 to 2, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The word becoming flesh is the conviction of the author of Hebrews. That's why he quotes the Psalms the most in the book of Hebrews. It's the most quoted book in the New Testament and also in Hebrews. And with the psalmist, the writer of Hebrews, his predominant thought is that when we encounter the word of God, we encounter God himself. When we come into the presence of the word, we come into the presence of God. So his message to his listeners in Hebrews is to listen, to take heed, obey, do not be distracted, do not fall away. So in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, it says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of matter, and of discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He's saying the same thing the psalmist is saying, which is what? The word of God represents God, and the word of God has been fully revealed to us in the Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he says, what the word commands do it, what the word prohibits, don't do it. Because what the word commands, God has commanded. What the word prohibits, God has prohibited. Because it is the faithful representation of God himself. So that's one concept that we need to understand. That this is, the word of God is not disconnected. Not disassociated from God himself. It is God's gracious means to us to get to know him to understand him. And so because of that, there are two ways to live, two types of people. Those who belong to God and those who oppose him. Specifically, those who live by the word of God and those who ignore and neglect it. Let's go back to verse 73 in Psalm 119. It says, your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. You know, the word there, fashioned, has two meanings. One is to form, you know, physically, give structure. That is what you see in Psalm 33, which is a very famous creation uh, passage in, in the Psalms. The other meaning is in Psalm 8, verse 3, which we read, which is the moon and stars which you have set in place. 
or the moon and stars which you have fashioned. It's the same word. What is the difference? In one, when we say the word form, we are talking about physiology or structure, physique. But when we talk about you have set in place, we are talking about identity or what we call the constitution of a person. And it's as if God is saying, this is a star, right? It's not a star because it has like five pointy edges, right? Like we draw in school or whatever. It's a star because I have said this is a star. I've given it its identity. I've set it in place. And then he says, this is a man. The identity of that of mankind comes from God. So the Psalms is saying, God has made me who I am, not what I am, who I am, and what he has made me for is to learn his commandments. This is what a commentator says about this verse. It says, man established in his own special place in the created order is unique. What sets him over the work of God's hands is not that he's a reasoning being, or that he's a tool using creature, you know, some, you know, we have opposable thumbs, so do like baboons or whatever, so that's where we get the idea of, oh, we are kind of similar to baboons. So what he's saying is, what sets him over the work of God's hands over the rest of creation is not that he's a reasoning being or a tool using creature, but that he can have the understanding, the sentience, the intellect, to learn God's commandments. And only those whose life is aligned with the word of God exemplify or symbolize humanity as God meant it to be. God meant humans to be in a relationship with him, to know him, how? Through the revelation that he has given to to learn his commandments, therefore he has given them understanding. And the exemplary human life is one that, as the psalmist says, hopes in the word, verse 74, which you read, that delights and finds happiness in his law, verse 77, and whose heart desires to be blameless in keeping his statutes, verse 80. That is the ideal human being, that your heart is tuned, that to the word of God, that the word of God is stored, hidden in your heart. In contrast to that type of man are those who are opposed to the word of God, who, again, the psalmist says in verse 78, are insolent. It says, let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. What is insolence? Arrogance. Saying, let the arrogant be put to shame. Why are they arrogant? They're arrogant in not that not only that they oppose the truth of God, but they're actively engaged in countering it with falsehood. In verse 85, it says, The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. Their life is contrary to the revealed will of God. In short, it's their actions that mark them out as opposed to God, but also their whole mindset denies the necessity of God, and by extension, the necessity of the word of God for life and living. It's a mindset that is actively engaged in acting contrary 
to the word of God. Their hope is not in God. They are not bothered with his statutes and precepts. And where the believer says that his happiness is in the law that is worth more than thousands of gold and silver pieces, their happiness is found elsewhere and in actively opposing God, his word, and his people. So the psalmist says, God has created us to know him through his commandments. And then there's two options. Either you live according to the way God has purposed you to live, or you don't, which is how you oppose God and you oppose God's word. So the word of God is a faithful representation of God. It gives us then, it leaves us then with the choice how we are to live, and there's only two ways. So then the psalmist comes to the concept of where is the believer's confidence going to be in this life? And the answer is obviously the word of God. That's what he's leading up to. You see, the theme that has been growing in prominence over the course of Psalm 119, as we have read thus far, is affliction. You know, we covered last week how God sovereignly controls and uses affliction for our good to continue to fashion us into the, into the mold or into the image that he has purposed us to be. So God intends, he controls, he's sovereign over affliction and he intends it for our good. But the psalmist is very real. He's brutally honest. And he does not wish to deal you know, in, in the empty kind of platitudes that so often surround us when we undergo suffering in the Christian life. He, he's real. He lays it out there, so to speak. You know, in verse 42 of this psalm, we read that he's taunted. Okay. Verse 51, he's mocked. Verse 61, he's ensnared in the courts of the wicked. In verse 69, then he's smeared with lies. In verse 78, he's wronged with falsehood. Things are not getting better. In fact, they're getting worse. The severity of the affliction is increasing. Where he started out as being taunted, now he's ensnared, he's trapped, he's being wronged with lies. You get the sense by the time you approach this passage that only the arrogant are speaking. And that he has run out of words to defend himself and he's silenced in the midst of an opposing world. So his question to himself and to us is in the midst of this affliction, where is our confidence going to be? Because he has not been rescued, clearly. So where is our confidence going to be? And is our confidence in God and in the word of God sufficient to overcome the increasing severity of the circumstances that he finds himself in. And what's interesting is that we have to look at it as two passages. Verse 73 to 80, we see his confidence continuing to be in the faithfulness of God who has afflicted him in verse 75. In verse 75 it says, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. He continues to uphold his witness that God is in control and that his righteous rules are sure to bring him through his time of suffering. He says, I know that his knowledge of the word of God is not merely intellectual, but experiential in that God has been faithful in the past. God has been steadfast in the past. His promises to him have never failed and therefore he has no reason to doubt that in the future. That's, I know. He relies not on his own strength, 
But as we read on, but on the steadfast love and the revealed promise of God, in verse 76, and in the mercy of God, in whose law he delights. And in his confidence, he says that he can be a testimony and encouragement to others who fear God. To say, look at how God has been faithful in bringing me through these trials, how he's sustaining me in these trials. That's what he says in verse 74 and 79. He says, they shall see me and rejoice at the faithfulness of God in my life. Okay, so far so good. Let's go to verse 81 to 88. It says, my soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute with falsehood. Help me. They have almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. So you stop at verse 80. What you have is a very standard Christian understanding of suffering, right? Then you go to verse 81. It deepens, the affliction deepens into the most desperate of his prayers in the whole of this psalm. He says in verse 81, in my translation, it says, my soul longs. But that's not what I actually mean. It says, my soul faints. Verse 82, it says, my eyes long for your promise. That's not what it says. It says, my eyes fail to see your promise. My soul faints. My eyes fail. Then in verse 87, it says, they have made an end of me. They have wiped, they're about to wipe me off the face of this earth. They're about to erase the memory of my life from this earth. And then, you know, in, in um, all of these words, the root word is basically a word that is called kala in Hebrew, from which we get the Arabic word kalas. I don't know if you know that. From which we just get the Urdu and the Hindi word kalas, which basically means I'm finished. I'm done. I cannot go on. I'm finished. He says, I'm a wineskin in the smoke. I, I'm dried. I'm cracked. I'm slowly roasted in the unforgiving fire and smoke till I'm of no use to anyone anymore. I've been wrung so wretchedly that every ounce of life in me is drained, that I'm as useless as a dried and cracked wineskin which cannot hold any wine within it. You know, uh, there was a mystic called St. John of the Cross who coined this term called the dark night of the soul. What he means by that is that God's rescue is not in sight. 
God's presence is not felt. God's voice is not heard. The promised land has disappeared from the horizon. You are all, you feel you're all alone. And you cannot go on. You cannot survive. What do you do when you come to that point in your life? You know, there comes a point at which the tormented soul can no longer tell itself as it could previously how good for you affliction is. There comes a state of mind when it cannot care less oh, that God is somehow confounding the wicked through this affliction or how encouraged the godly is going to be by my splendid example. It could in the past, but those days are gone. This is the deepest despair of a believer's life, of the Christian life, and many saints go through it. And I don't, I don't want to be flippant. You know, this is not, you know, someone didn't call me on my birthday or my kid threw a tantrum in the supermarket, so I feel bad. No, this is like, you feel like God has abandoned you. He has left you to, to fend for yourself. That all of the injustice in the world, instead of you know, being, being righteously judged, has somehow c- come to fall upon you. And when this is you, when your spirit is dry, when God seems silent, when darkness has overtaken you in the valley of the shadow of death, The psalmist asks, where is your confidence going to be? You know, the famous preacher, C.H. Spurgeon, he had, he went uh, when he was about 23 and he was a preacher then, there was an accident in his church which which had a lot of casualties. It left him very badly scarred and he developed what they used to call melancholy, but we know now as depression, like the deepest depression. His wife wrote, my beloved's anguish was so deep and violent that reason seemed to totter in her throne, that his mind could not focus on what was real and what was not. And we sometimes feared that he would never preach again at the age of 23. Then at the age of 33, he, got, he started having physical pain from a burning kidney inflammation, as well as gout and rheumatism and neuritis. The pain was so much that one third of the time he could no longer preach. That means of all of his preaching engagements, he withdrew one third of the time. And then on top of that, he had overwork and stress and guilt about the stress and all of this in the public eye. And then there were people who came up to him and said that this suffering shows that you are doing something wrong, that this is a judgment from God. So much so that today he would almost certainly be diagnosed as uh, clinically depressed and treated with medication and therapy. They did whatever they could at that time with the therapies that they had. And the depression could hit him so intensely that once he said, I say with Job that my soul chooseth strangling rather than life. Job chapter 7 and verse 15 says that my soul wishes that someone would take my neck and and strangle the life out of me. And, and Spurgeon said, I could readily enough have laid violent hands upon myself to escape from my misery of spirit. What will you do? Now we talked about Job. Job faced many forms of suffering. 
He lost his children and his wealth in a single day. He was struck with painful sores. He came to a point where his friends came. They sat down with him for seven days and seven nights saying nothing because they have nothing to say. There's no justification. There's no, there's no reasoning. There's no rationality behind it. Then his wife said, the one option is that why are you still maintaining your integrity? You curse God and die. Job, cha- Job chapter 2 and verse 9. His wife said, you give up. You have to die. How do you know you're going to die? You curse God. And, and you know, it's very easy to see Job's wife as being wrong, but her response was natural. It's not Job, just Job who lost all those things. She lost her children. She lost all of her home and her wealth and so on. And now she has to watch her husband suffer in this unending, unending, excruciating pain. In living faithfully before God meant that he was going to suffer like this, she reasoned, it's better to die. And the same understanding is later conveyed by the friends of Job. So the question we ask is, is there another way? And the psalmist says, there is. He says, verse 81, I will hope in the word. Verse 86, all your commandments are sure. Verse 87, I, will, I have not forsaken your precepts. And so you ask, where does this confidence come from? In spite of all the evidence to the contrary. And this is why we go to the beginning. He says, I have hid the word of God in my heart. He carries the word of God in his heart that cannot be snatched away. That is all he has to cling to. He's telling himself, the presence of the word in my heart is the presence of God. The promise of his word is that he will be vindicated. That is the promise he holds on to. The testimony of his past is that God has been faithful. He's saying, the word of God is the pres- you know, in my heart gives me the confidence that God has not left me. And his confidence in God's love is what leads him to say in verse 88, he says, in your steadfast love, he says, give me life. He doesn't say, in your steadfast love, rescue me. He doesn't say, in your steadfast love, allow me to survive. He says, in your steadfast love, give me life. Not to survive or just to escape, but to live. He's saying, whatever it is that you're doing, Lord, I do not doubt you as long as I'm in your presence, for you are life. Not this breath or this body, but you, not for me, the comfort of the wicked who are cast out of your presence, but for me is that confidence that someday in this life or in the life to come, I will once again sense the fullness of joy that is promised in your word, that I've hid in my heart, that I have no reason to doubt because you have been faithful to me thus far. That's the confidence that I'm going to hold on to. And that is Job's confidence as well. In Job chapter 13, verse 15, he says, Though he slay me, though he kills me, yet will I hope in him. Because he says, I would rather be with God and trust him than to take comfort in the world and what the world has to say. You know, I thought about this. Again, when you read words, it's easy to, to think that we understand it or to, to say, okay, we, we figured it out. 
But how does this guy have so much confidence in God, in the word of God? You know, recently, last year, they said the previous estimates of all the number of galaxies in the universe was wrong because they calculated it wrongly. Say, in 2016, they said the observable universe, that is just the part of the universe that you can somehow see from the Earth through telescopes and whatnot, it contains 10 to 20 times as many galaxies than previous estimates. So that means in the observable universe, there are now estimated to be between one and two trillion galaxies. Whereas previously they said 100 billion galaxies. That means the number of stars in the observable universe is now 700 sextillion, which is seven with 23 zeros behind it, or 700,000 billion billion. That's just within what we as human beings with our technology and so on can observe. Then they have found stars. There's a star called US 708, which travels at 745 miles per second, which is 1,200 kilometers per second, which is 26 million miles per hour. It is the fastest star where? In the Milky Way, which is our galaxy. You know, Jupiter is the largest planet in, the, in our galaxy. It's two and a half times more massive than all the rest of the planets in the solar system combined. Jupiter's diameter is 11.2 times larger than Earth. That means you can take 11 Earths, put them side by side, and that's Jupiter. There's a planet called Kepler-39b, which has 18 times the mass of Jupiter. 18 times the mass of Jupiter. And when scientists look at these planets, these really large planets, one of the confounding things is there's so much energy in the universe that are contained in these heavenly objects that at some point this, ener this energy causes these planets, these stars to explode, that they cannot continue to survive in their present form. So these large planets, what they call exoplanets, tend to be like 18 times larger than Jupiter. And at the same time, their weight, you know, their density within them is half the size of Jupiter. Basically, this, the, the, the circumference of this planet is 18 times the size of Jupiter, and its weight is half of it, half the size, half the weight of Jupiter. Say so you took a balloon and you blow it you keep blowing it, blowing it, blowing it, blowing it, blowing it till it is larger than the Earth. And it keeps its shape. And yet it is lighter than the Earth. And they don't understand how it works. That is the majesty of the universe. Now God says to the stars, maybe two things. He says, come forth. And perhaps... I don't know, I'm guessing, he says, be no more. Your life is done. Whatever life they have, it's like thousands of years. You know, I might have a lifetime of 70 to 80 years. I'm weak, I'm weary, I'm unfaithful. Some days I cannot get out of bed. 
Sometimes I cannot discern what is my right side from the left, what to say, what not to say, how to treat people, how not to treat people, how to raise my children. You know, God has given me 760,000 words. Me. It is in me that God has put his imprint. Not in Kepler 39b, the most majestic planet in the observable universe, or in Jupiter. In me, weak, weary, unfaithful, he has put his image in me, and he's given me his word. 760,000 is the number of words on approximate in your English language Bible. So what the psalmist is saying is that when you don't hear him or sense him, remember that of all the creation in the universe, he has only spoken fully and faithfully to you. And his promise still stands. You know, great is his faithfulness. That's it. Even if, the psalmist is saying, even if God, you don't, I don't sense you anymore. I don't hear from you anymore. The fact that you have spoken to me. Thus far, you have kept me. You have been faithful to your word. That is enough. That is the Christian's confidence in the darkest night. That whatever else may go away, there is one thread there is one strand of a rope that you can hold on to. That is the voice of God in the word of God that is given to you. He's saying in the valley, you're not alone. Though it may not feel like it, God is still there. But remember that the word of God is in your heart that says truthfully that he has loved you. He has justified you. He is bringing you home. You know, towards the end of his life, Spurgeon, with all of his challenges, he said in a, in a lecture to his students, which is called The Minister's Fainting Fits, he said, knowing by most painful experience what deep depression of spirit means, I thought it might be a consolation to some of you, especially you younger men, when you go through, th go through some sad, strange thing, that you know that when you are for a season possessed by melancholy, which is depression or sadness, he says, you should know that upon me whom the sun shines joyous, joyously and rightfully, I did not always walk in the light of the sun. That is the testimony of the faithful. He's saying there was a time in my life where the sun did not shine. Today it shines on me. And I want you to take comfort that when that time comes in your life, remember that God is faithful. Remember that God's word is still true and that he has given it to you to take hold of and to appropriate. He would also go on to say that when he was preaching, I desire to speak as a weak and suffering preacher of that high priest who is full of compassion and my longing is that any who are low in spirit, faint, despondent, and even out of the way may take heart to approach the Lord Jesus 
who is touched not with the feeling of your strength, but of your infirmity. Down here, poor feeble nothings affect the heart of their great high priest on high, who is crowned with glory and honor. As the mother feels the weakness of her babe, so does Jesus feel with the poorest, saddest, and weakest of his chosen. What he's saying is that when you go through the valley, you follow the voice in your head, which comes from the word of God, which says, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That is the confidence of the saint, that he has not abandoned you. He has promised that your rest is coming, so you go on. I don't know how many of you have read uh, Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, but in that, which is an allegory of the Christian life, you know, these travelers come to this place called the Valley of Humiliation, which is this deep, dark valley. And, and, they, and before them, this man called Christian has gone through, and there are messages which say this is where Christian fought, this is where Christian was overcome by this and all, but they know he's gone. He's gone into the rest so they're following his path and they're finding all the trouble. It's called the valley of humiliation. They cannot sense God. They cannot um, you know, sense anything that should give them hope. And then at the end of that one of the passages it says, you know, we have wished that when we turn the corner that's coming up, my father's house will be there that we will be troubled no more with either hills or mountains to climb over. We have climbed enough hills and mountains for a lifetime. So we wish that when I turn this corner, that is my father's house. But even if not, the way is the way and there's an end. We can pray there will be help. We can pray that the end is in sight. But what they're saying, or what the writer is saying is that, I know God has set me on this way. It's narrow, it's difficult. And I hope there is an end that's coming soon. But I know there is an end. So I will keep going on. That's how the saints, whose legacy we follow, they went through their Christian life. Hoping for help hoping that the end was right there over the horizon. But even if it was not there, they said there will be an end because God has promised his eternal rest to me, so I'm going to keep going on. The vindication of God, the salvation of God, the joy of God is coming. I don't know when it's coming, but I'm sure of it, so I'll keep on walking in the valley of the shadow of death. Be amazed that God has spoken to you because of that, we want to live for him. And our confidence in the darkest times is in him who has spoken to us and in his word that he has given us. May his name be glorified. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your word, your promise that is faithful and sure that you have granted us to, to, to not just read and learn, but to store in the deepest valleys of our heart, O oh Lord, the deepest uh, parts of our being, so that when we, everything else is stripped away, O oh Lord, 
we can still hold on to the fact that you have promised your eternal rest to us. We know, Allah, that we have a Savior who is not unlike us, but he has gone through even more than what we can go through. And because of that, he sympathizes with us. He cares for us. We can bring our deepest troubles, our deepest despair to him. And we know he's going to be faithful. But we thank you a lot for the word that no one can snatch away, that no one can take away from us, even if they take everything else away. The word that has proven to be true and faithful in our life, that we should never doubt that it will not continue to be true and faithful as we go on. So, oh Lord, even in the darkest of times, may we realize that you are not silent. You have spoken. You have spoken to us, and we have access to your words in any circumstance in life. So may we hold our confidence in that, and may we hold our confidence in you, who has called us into your eternal rest. So we ask, O oh Lord, that we live by your word, and if needed, die by it. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we ask. Amen.